0: Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theeorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Steyrmark, available at organicuniverse.com. Listeners of The Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Jonathan M. Lair, who's going to talk about alternatives to trees and plants that are invasive in your yard. Jonathan Lair is a native Long Islander whose passion for the natural world extends from early childhood. Currently Assistant Professor and Assistant Chairman in the Department of Urban Horticulture and Design at Farmingdale State College, he returned home eight years ago after completing his doctoral degree at the University of Connecticut. He currently teaches courses in woody plants, native plants, and indoor horticulture. He is active with several groups that address the invasive plant issue, serves on the Long Island Gold Medal Plant Committee, and consults privately on horticultural matters. Dr. Lair is also a plant hobbyist with special interests in variegated cultivars and traditional Japanese collector plants. So I would like to welcome to the show Dr. Jonathan Lair. Good afternoon and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you today. I appreciate the invitation and hope I can get some uh, good information out there to your audience.
0: Thank you. Dr. Laird, how did you become interested in horticulture?
1: You know, I think horticulture kind of runs in my family and my genes. My uh, grandmother, uh, my father's side, was... uh, very interested in horticulture and was always out there practicing her skills with her vegetable garden and ornamental garden. And my father also uh, is extremely interested in that. And from the earliest time I can remember, going back to when I was probably uh, three years old, I was out there with my father Planting crocus corms in the fall and planting bean seeds around St. Patrick's Day, and I think it's grown from there. I mean, I don't only really like plants. I'm really interested in all aspects of the natural world. I, you know, kept insects as pets when I was a kid and spiders and turtles and frogs. So, I, you know, I'm just sort of, a, I guess, a, a naturalist at heart.
0: Although our audience is quite sophisticated, especially with so many different topics, there's a great need for accurate information. Therefore, I'd like to begin by asking you if you could provide to our listeners the definition of an invasive species.
1: I think that's a great place uh, to start, June, because uh, whenever I engage in a discussion on this topic with virtually any audience, I always spend some time initially defining terms because the the term invasive is sort of thrown around in a very nonchalant sort of willy-nilly fashion and it's often sort of misappropriated for the wrong reasons. When I think of an invasive plant and when other uh, colleagues of mine in in the scientific or ecological world think of an invasive plant, we tend to apply a very biological based definition to the concept in that An invasive plant, by definition, has to be a plant that is not native to the area of concern. And that in itself is a complex issue because as you have an audience who's ranging from many different geographical areas, a plant that may be considered invasive on long island or in new york may not be invasive in another part of the country or another part of the world but by definition you have to first define your geographic point of reference and then any plant that you consider to be invasive has to be non-native to that area we also with invasive plants have or invasive organisms in general have species which have the ability to spread far beyond their initial point of introduction. Now, that spread is typically carried on through sexual propagules, meaning that with a plant, we're thinking of seeds that are produced in a fruit, perhaps a very showy red fruit, and that fruit is eaten by a vector, which typically is a bird or a rodent or some other animal. That bird then transports that propagule could be hundreds of feet, could be a half a mile, could be multiple miles away from that initial point, and then drops to the seed in what is often called seed rain, which I always enjoy that term. And then that plant gains a foothold and grows and then has the ability to cause some sort of damage to the native ecosystem. And this is important, that there has to be, a scientifically based phenomenon that we can prove and demonstrate and reproduce whereby the introduction of this plant into its new habitat causes damage to the native flora and fauna could be anything ra- uh, ranging from physically smothering the local plant life to changing the pH of the soil or in the case of, for example, purple loosestrife, which is one of the sort of banner, you know, children of the invasive plant movement changing water pH, which may affect, for example, the breeding of amphibians like repti- uh, like uh, frogs and the salamanders. So the, the different impacts that invasive plants have are wide-ranging, but there does have to be some sort of empirical science-based impact that we can demonstrate. That's That's important because, as I said earlier, Many people throw around this term of invasive in a very sort of nonchalant, non-scientific way, but we need to have sort of evidence. It has to be an evidence-based declaration, not simply someone's observation in their home garden that says, oh, this plant is getting out of hand, therefore it's invasive. That That is not a, a scientific approach. There are
0: some species which are pretty to look at but are dangerous to humans, such as giant
1: hogweed. hmm
0: Can you talk about some of these species and how did they become invasive?
1: Well, you have two different elements in that question there in that, you know, can we declare a species to be invasive because of the impact it has on humans? And that impact could be, as you uh, suggest, a a health impact like giant hogweed, which has a sap that can cause rather horrible dermatitis to those who come in contact uh, with it or we could also have plant species for example water hyacinth which is a widespread problem throughout tropical and subtropical areas which causes sort of uh, waterways to be clogged and th- and therefore it impairs the recreational use of those waterways or even the transport of you know goods that may be uh, on a river so you know Typically, a plant is not declared invasive because of those sorts of issues. Now, there are some government offices, for example, that do consider what is often termed the socioeconomic impact of a plant, and that that impact can be sort of figured into an assessment of how invasive a plant may be. But I tend to sort of dwell on the actual biological impact of a plant on other organisms in a natural ecosystem as my primary determinant as to whether a plant is invasive or not. And that, that is widely, widely shared by others in the scientific community. But when you do look at more of a legislative appraisal of a, a plant or other organism, oftentimes they do factor into uh, the equation impacts on human concerns, whether it be health or commerce or recreation that sort of thing. And I think the second part of your question dealt with how plants become invasive, am I am I correct with that?
0: Yes, with plants such as giant hogweed or even something like poison ivy. Mm-hmm. How do they become invasive?
1: Well, it's it's important first to recognize that for viewers of yours who are in let's say the eastern part of North America, United States, Poison ivy, as uh, bothersome as it may be because of the chemicals it contains that irritate skin, poison ivy is native to North America. So for example, you know here in New York, poison ivy has been growing in our environment long before any Europeans set foot here, and therefore, poison ivy, by definition, is not invasive. It's just a bothersome weed, and that gets back to our initial discussion of, you know, this idea of using a proper terminology. But to, to get back to your your initial question, so let's let's take for example the the giant hogweed. How did that plant here in North America become a a problem? These plants have been transported. Plants have been moved around the world since the dawn of our species, whether it be intentionally, for example, for a food crop or unintentionally as perhaps a hitchhiker in uh, contaminated grain or contaminated soil or often in the ballast that uh, ships would use as they transported goods and people around the world, that contaminant often served as the transportation of an organism, a plant, from one area of the world to another. And once those plants gained a foothold in their new uh, environment, very often they were sort of out of balance with other organisms in the the ecosystem, and they were able to take advantage of that. Maybe they had no natural predators, no natural herbivores that were used to eating them, and they were able to uh, sort of gain a foothold and begin out-competing the local uh, species, and eventually they take on this character that we call these days uh, invasive so most of the invasive plants for example here in eastern north america in new york uh, for example hail from parts of eastern asia or in some cases parts of continental europe places that have very similar climate conditions to what we experience here in eastern north america so those plants when they're transported uh, introduced for Horticultural purposes, or maybe for uh, agricultural forage, or maybe they were used initially, which is quite ironic, for environmental restoration or soil stabilization. Those plants, which hail from climates that are very similar to ours, they don't know where they're growing, so they just do what they've been genetically programmed to do. And the only problem is that, though, that natural growth, that natural vigor, very often interferes with our concerns and the concerns of the established ecosystem, and therefore they take on the character that we call invasive.
0: What can people do to educate themselves and become enlightened horticultural consumers?
1: Yeah, that's an, that's an important question. Uh, and thankfully, with, with heightened awareness of this issue uh, across the country and I'm sure uh, beyond our borders, lots of university systems enlightened uh, retail nurseries but i i'm especially uh, sort of attached to cooperative extension systems you know every state has a land-grant university that receives public funding and one of the services that those land-grant universities provide Is sort of cooperative extension offices that are located in most every county in the state and those offices are staffed by folks who are trained for example in horticultural matters and a great source is to go to your local cooperative extension office and tell them that you want to invest in some new landscaping but you want to be sure that the selections you make are plants which are not going to be uh, weedy or invasive or problematic Or in some cases, you may even want to specify that you're interested in growing only those species which are native to the local area. And most of these extension offices or university horticulture departments these days will have resources they can point you to. They'll have fact sheets. Many of these fact sheets and resources are available online and can be downloaded uh, for home use. So thankfully, it is a wealth of information out there so you can make sort of enlightened choices when you're looking to supplement your landscape.
0: Could you make some recommendations as far as any specific species that you happen to like? And granted, I understand that this, Is going to a global audience. If you could just share with the listeners some of the tree species that you happen to like and why.
1: Well, I think you you had mentioned a few moments ago uh, privet, the the genus ligustrum, which is one of the most widely used traditional hedging plants throughout North America and indeed uh, throughout the world. And here in North America, as you mentioned, there are certain privet species which have become invasive. All privets hail from parts of Asia, and some of them do extremely well here, and they self-seed in our woodlands. So that's a plant which, uh, for example, here on the east end of Long Island, privet is one of the primary hedging plants used around large houses to give privacy and block roadways and such. And uh, I I often point to, uh, for example, our common native plant called bayberry. Bayberry is most famous for the candles that uh, were traditionally made from the wax on the fruit, of the, uh, of the bayberry, but bayberry is a plant which is naturally adapted to growing in very poor soil, very hot, dry situations where we often employ privet. So it's important that when we're selecting alternative plants that we don't only mimic the ornamental features of the invasive species we're looking to replace, but we also approximate the cultural needs of that plant. You know, for example, I'm often asked to suggest alternatives to winged euonymus or a burning bush, as it's often called, euonymus elatus, which unfortunately is uh, somewhat invasive in parts of the northeastern United States, and I don't recommend our native blueberry, not because I don't enjoy blueberries. Blueberry is a wonderful, edible, ornamental shrub, but I'd be lying if I told you that the cultural needs of blueberry are you know commensurate with the needs of winged euonymus so again it's important to realize that you need to match not only as best as you can the ornamental traits but also the cultural needs so in the case of the uh, privet i would suggest the uh, northern bayberry or one of our wonderful native viburnums, viburnum dentatum which is known as the arrowwood viburnum and those are two plants which can tolerate the same harsh conditions that a privet favors, but also they can be pruned and trained into hedges the same way that privet can. So in my mind, that's a, an appropriate recommendation for an alternative. Well, I, I started, for example, with wing duonomus. So wing duonomus, burning bush, one of the most popular Uh, ornamental plants that we have here in the eastern United States. It's most famous for the brilliant bright red fall color that that it will be assuming uh, within a few weeks here in the East Coast. And unfortunately, it does have this invasive aspect. So I often suggest uh, plants that are in the genus Aronia. Aronia is known as the chokeberry, chokeberry shrubs. There are two primary species, Aronia arbutifolia, known as the red chokeberry, and we also have Aronia melanocarpa, known as the black chokeberry. And the reason why I suggest those two plants as potential alternatives is they have very similar cultural needs, meaning that they're very culturally plastic. They can tolerate almost any condition. And they also, the Aronias, have wonderful, brilliant red fall color. They also have very good fruit in the fall, which actually exceeds the ornamental nature of uh, the fruit on the euonymus. And I think what's really exciting as well is that there's a whole industry uh, at uh, private companies and also at uh, research universities that are actively breeding many of these alternative plants so that we'll have more compact cultivars tight-growing, and one of my colleagues up at the University of Connecticut, uh, Dr. Mark Brand, he's actively breeding dwarfer varieties of aronia, and I'm sure within five or ten years, there'll be a whole new generation of plants that actually will even approximate the dense, rounded habit of dwarf-winged euonymus. So I think what's really there's a lot of hope for the future when we talk about alternative plants because People recognize that there's a need for these plants. There's lots of legislation at the state level that is banning these invasive species, and we need to have new selections that can be used in modern landscaping to uh, approximate and replace many of these older selections.
0: Thank you. Now, you mentioned that there is information available to the public as far as legally making certain species or prohibiting certain species, can you recommend to the listeners any resources where they can learn more on their own?
1: Very uh, Definitely I can. I'll start here with locally, you know, in the state of New York, there is a, a website that's called nyis.info, which is a New York invasive species information clearinghouse, and there's lots of wonderful information there, including links to other states and other federal authorities where you can get information about not only which organisms are considered invasive, but also ideas for alternatives. Uh, Going a little bit um, broader in scope, there is a longstanding website information resource called the Invasive Plant Atlas of New England, and the invasive plant Atlas of New England is also a clearinghouse for the entire, basically the entire region of the Northeast and Eastern North America. Lots of good profiles of invasive species. If you come across a plant in a, a forest situation that you're looking to identify, a website like this would be a great, uh, a great resource for you. There's also the uh, United States government has a, a website which is. Uh, InvasiveSpeciesInfo.gov, known as the uh, National Invasive Species Information Center, and that, of course, has a much more global reach than one of the state or regional resources, and there's lots of great information on this website as well related to profiles of specific invasive plants, related to legislation at the state level, alternative selections, so Uh, And it's an example of our our tax dollars uh, going to a a good use. And uh, there's no shortage of information out there. All I would say to your listeners and to anybody is that when you're looking for information online or in the digital world about invasive species or alternatives to invasive species, I would try to stick with websites or resources that have a connection to state universities or the government or cooperative extension services because most often that information is going to be more up-to-date and potentially accurate because if you go to for example nurse websites that are connected to a nursery or some sort of retail concern not that those can't be wonderful resources but very often the information is somewhat slanted because there is sort of a an economic motive uh you know involved but whereas a a, a national uh, website or a cooperative extension website, the information there is not, you know, tainted by any sort of uh, economic motive and very often is a bit more uh, accurate.
0: Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lara, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the show today, and I welcome you any time to come back. Oh,
1: thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share this information. It's obviously a very prominent issue these days and one that more folks should uh, be aware of and they should look to you know, act in a in a more proactive manner to uh, combat this. I, I think there's a tendency among uh, many observers to so, sort of look at this at, in a very negative outlook. You know, we have these invasive species. What are we going to do? But I think what, what people need to realize is that it's not a death sentence for horticulture or for beautification of landscapes. There's a lot of other options out there. It's just a matter of becoming educated, in what, into what the problem entails and then making very you know, practical, informed, uh, enlightened choices as we move forward uh, in horticulture in the uh, the 21st century. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Folks, please check out the companion article to this interview which will be available at www.theorganicview.com which will also include some images of some of the recommended species as well as the links that Dr. Lara recommended. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Steuer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone.